the question was about the just the extreme of emotions going on during this time and people leaving. Um, I think the first thing to remind yourself of, and it takes reminding yourself often, uh, that you're much more open and sensitive than you realize. You know, because when you're in the middle of a process and going through it, it's like you're so involved in the process itself that it's very difficult really to ascertain how far you've gone from our ordinary kind of consciousness, you know, which is uh, much more defended, much more armored. Uh, after six weeks or three months of sitting, it's like the system is wide open even if it doesn't feel like it is to you, it is. And that's why this whole period of the next few days, it's really like a, a decompression. No, it is. You know, sometimes the image which comes to my mind is like of these deep sea divers. You know, if you come up too quickly, it's dangerous. And it's like that. You've been in very deep even when it doesn't feel like it. That's the point that you need to uh, hear and acknowledge. So after six weeks or three months of silence and this buildup of energy and this sensitivity, I mean, you've been watching things on this microscopic moment-to-moment level. It's like a whole different realm that you've been living in. You know, and all of a sudden the silence breaks and back to a more ordinary kind of consciousness and activity. It's a huge change. Uh, which is why there's been so much encouragement to take it slow, you know, and to come out and interact for a while, go back and sit for a while, let it integrate, come back and interact. Uh, so that's one of the things that's going on, and that's why we actually have you know, four or five days for this process. And I think you'll see well, one of the common rhythms of it is that people when first break the silence, kind of a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, and then there's a crash. You know, and really can feel lonely, depressed, judgmental, alienated, just all those things. And then you work through that and you come back you know, over the next day or two, really to a place of balance. And uh, I think you'll find, you know, by Saturday or Sunday, you really are in a much more even place. So that's just by way of understanding the process that's going on now. You really want to treat it as its own kind of retreat. When I started my practice, I, I did a lot in India uh, in the early years, and I would spend months or years there. Uh, and then I would come back to the States for a while, either to visit family or you know, work to make some money to go back again. The transitions were incredibly difficult, because not only was it going from intensive practice to non, it was going from India back to America. You know, I'd get off the plane at Kennedy Airport, having just spent a long time, you know, in practice. <laughs> it was really hard, you know, 
basically how I handled it was, you know, listening to Bob Dylan and smoking dope. <laughs> of course, that was the 60s. I don't think it was the best way. <laughs> what I found over time, I did that many times. <laughs> the transition. <laughs> what I found was that it eventually got easier. You know, that after some time I learned how to be with that kind of transition from intensive practice back to the world, from Asia to America. And so there's a learning that can happen you know, if you're paying attention rather than just being caught up or lost in this particular cycle. Uh, so you really want to use this time. It's very, uh, it can be very insightful for how the mind gets caught in the ups and downs of it or whether you can treat these rhythms in the same way that you did the ups and downs in, in the intensive practice. But it takes a lot of attentiveness. It takes really being mindful, paying attention, uh, using the noting, remembering that what your practice is the mind of no attachment. Right? Because it's very easy to want to hold on to a state, and that's one of the reasons people often feel depressed or alienated, because it feels like a loss. You know, you were in this very refined state of consciousness, and then all of a sudden you're coming out of that, and it's hectic, and the energy's wild, and... Remember that what's being practiced is not the refined state of consciousness. What's being practiced is the mind of no attachment. And that can be practiced as well during this week as anything you, you experienced in the weeks before. Uh, people are leaving. See what that brings up. No. <laughs> what I love about this, and it's like our whole life is a demonstration of the Four Noble Truths. And if we can learn to frame our experience with wisdom, we see that whatever experience is arising, look at the suffering. What is its cause? Its cause is always some kind of attachment to something. Where is the end of the suffering? In the letting go of the attachment. And so, so it's a rich time, but, but be gentle with yourself. You know, you want to do this with with care and with some sensitivity. When we get decompressed, do we lose the openness? It varies a lot. I don't. I don't think you will keep this. The question was: When you get decompressed, do you lose the openness? I think, unfortunately, some levels of defenses are going to come back. You know, for dealing with the world, and maybe they're, maybe they're necessary even, or maybe it's not so unfortunate, but it's all a question of remembering. 
You know, it's not even that, it's not difficult to be mindful. It's not difficult to pay attention. It's just difficult to remember to do it. To the degree that you can remember, to that degree you stay open. You know, at the appropriate level. And maybe that's part of this week also, is finding out, okay, what is the appropriate level you know, of openness in the moment? Just one other thing which um, one of my Tibetan teachers really emphasized and I found very helpful, especially helpful in this kind of situation. He talked about it not being a question of trying to sustain mindfulness. It's a question of having many moments of it. You know, because if you're trying to sustain it, it's as if you're trying to hold on to a state and then you just get distracted and then whatever reactions or judgments you have about getting distracted and losing it. But if instead of thinking that you're trying to hold on to it or sustain it, you actually practice having many moments of it, that's in any moment it's available. So that's a whole different way of holding it that actually makes it much more accessible in this kind of uh, time. question was about, um, in this time, it doesn't feel so much like the moment-to-moment precise mindfulness, which is either happening or appropriate, but more a surrender just to the flow of experience. And um, I think there's a caution here. The surrender to the flow of experience sounds like a good idea. <laughs> However, I think the, the critical issue is whether there's a surrender and being identified with it all, or a surrender to it without that quality of identification. That's what can be cut through in a moment. Right. The, the sense of surrender or flow in terms of not trying to hold on to a state is a good idea. But in any moment, it's, it's like a moment of cutting through the identification, so there's really, you could call it a moment of mindfulness, a moment of awareness, a moment of non-identification, of non-clinging. And to notice the difference in your experience 
it's very striking. It's almost the difference between, well, it is the difference between being lost in this dream or being awake to the fact that it's happening in any particular moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that would be a very good practice, paying paying attention to whether in any moment there's clinging in the mind or not, identification in the mind or not. Ways to do this, and they're very simple. This is not complicated. As I say, it's really just a question of remembering. Many times in the day, just check in with the body, the body posture. No awareness of sitting, standing, walking, lying, whatever. Awareness of activity. Check in with you know, awareness of a thought or just lost in a thought. It's ve- Speech is a fantastic area to watch this because it's so easy to become identified with the energy of speech and to find ourselves somewhere out here. You know, it's as if we get identified and we're following the words out here in the interaction instead of actually being settled back in the body and being aware of the words and even aware at times of the intention before speaking. Uh, basically, it's, it's about really noticing many times in the day are we awake or are we asleep? Are we aware or are we lost? You know, are we identified or are we not identified? And this is, what, this is the point of the many moments rather than trying to hold on. It's not trying to sustain non-identification. It's cutting it in a moment many times. And that's what, that's what is able to be brought out and practiced in one's life, because it's not dependent on particular conditions. Exactly, because what I'm talking about in terms of moments of awareness, the the cutting through identification with what's going on, is not, uh, does not prescribe whether or not an action should follow from it. So, for example, there might be a feeling of great gratitude, you know, and we could either be lost in it, drowning in it, 
or we could be resting in the awareness of it, feeling it, totally open to it, feeling it, but without the sense of it claiming it as I or mine. Out of that awareness, there could then be the choice either just to be with it or to express it. Either could follow. You know, and that just depends on circumstances and own inclination. Uh, it's, you know, to, to, to bring the understanding that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine, to make that alive in our life. <laughs> it's tremendously challenging, you know, but I think it's really the challenge before us. We're in a very unique situation, I think, kind of historically, and I, I alluded to this, I think, in the last talk. Mostly people who are, who in the past, who have been committed to liberation, have gone off to the monasteries you know, and devoted their lives to it. Well, there's a whole new thing happening in the West so far. Maybe, you know, in 500 years we'll be doing the same thing. But there seem to be a growing number of people who really have liberation as the center of their intention, their motivation and yet not choosing to go off to the monasteries. That presents a very particular kind of challenge and really, I think, is more difficult. But that's, that's how we find ourselves. So what I find is very helpful is to realize what that challenge is rather than to think, oh, it doesn't make any difference. I'm out in the world, I'm in a monastery, same thing. I don't need to do anything special to stay awake. We do. You know, but if we recognize that, then we can actually practice to meet that challenge. And I think this is, this is unique now, you know, as, as practitioners in the West. Possibilities in 
a total different culture against the East where we have no support for, for monasteries here in the West. And my other question is uh, people from the West go to the East for practice and so on, and a part of them, or rather a great part of them, becomes a monk, uh, like Steve Smith, Steve uh, Armstrong, and myself, I was also a monk. My question is, you also practiced in Burma. Can you tell something about motivation? Why you didn't become a monk? <laughs> I was folding those robes. <laughs> Let me answer the first question first. Uh, about the question was about whether there's will really be a need for monastic culture in the West to really come to complete awakening, whether that's really an essential part of, of the path. Um, my sense is that it would certainly be a wonderful thing if that environment were available, you know, in our culture. Um, because there is something very special about uh, that life, and the Buddha certainly recommended it. You know, he said that the household life is full of dust. <laughs> and we all know that, you know, it's, it's very busy and engaging and seductive, and, which is why it takes a very special energy to stay awake in the midst of it all, where there's not a lot of cultural support. Uh, so I, I mean, just as a speculative vision, you know, it really inspires me to think that in a hundred years or two hundred or however long, you know, in this transplant of the Dharma in the West, that there will be places for women and men to ordain and practice. Uh, there are many stories from the Buddha's time of lay people reaching high stages of enlightenment. So, I don't think it's a necessity, but it certainly seems to help. Um, in terms of my own uh, choices, it's hard to say exactly, you know. Uh, I did ordain for a very short time, uh, but it was mostly mostly out of respect for Deepama's wishes, because uh, I had this very close relationship with her. And in Asian cultures, and especially in Theravada Buddhist culture, just the custom is that, especially for men, that they take some period of time, and it can be very short. Sometimes people do it for a day, or a weekend, or a week. You know, but that there's some kind of symbolic meaning in ordaining at least once in a lifetime. I didn't have that feeling strongly in myself, but she really <coughs> encouraged me to do it. Uh, and so really out of respect for her, uh, I did ordain for six weeks in 
Bodh Gaya. It was quite fantastic, actually. The, a whole group of us, people who had sat the three months, some people who had sat the three-month course just before, and other friends, uh, we ordained as a group, and they arranged this big elephant, so, which is also a kind of customary Asian thing that you go to the ordination in the trappings of a prince, you know, symbolizing Prince Siddhartha's renunciation, and then you shave the head and uh, take the robes. So we're riding on this big elephant up to the main temple in Bodh Gaya. <laughs> it was quite an event. But before Upandita, all of my teachers had been lay people. You know, Manindraji and Goenkaji and Deepama. Uh, and in India at that time, there really were not Theravada Buddhist monasteries. And so the place that I really started and practiced for many years was in a lay setting. Um, so I, I never felt that... Yeah, that was that was later. Uh, yeah, there was there was just never the, the there was never the pull for me, especially because it was for short. It was like for a few months at a time, you know. And it, in, in, yeah. 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 I didn't feel the need in that, in that center, as you know, many, it really functions more as a intensive meditation center than a community monastic situation, as for example, uh, in the Thai forest monasteries, where the practice really includes life in community. And that's not how the Mahasi Center is really set up. So I felt it really was not such a crucial issue. Uh, and it also, I think, that just as different people have different predilections. And I think my merit was not sufficient. <laughs> really. <laughs> question was about uh, something I, I had written uh, about uh, doesn't seem that the practice necessarily changes our basic personality. Uh, 
but how that connects with our aspirations in coming to practice and what we hope to gain from it and the relationship between psychology and practice in that regard. Uh, you said something actually which I think points to the, uh, the critical, uh, critical distinction and that is my understanding of the difference between personality and character because I think character does change and character seems to me to come out of the level of wisdom you know that that our character is determined by either an abundance of kalesa or what's the absence of the opposite of abundance the a dearth of kalesas galesa, you know and that really has to do with the character because it's it's about life choices and choices of action personality seems to be more superficial and that is it's sort of the filter through which the character manifests and acts. Um, and I think my, my experience of people, I was interested in, we used in the staff room in the old days, we used to have this uh, bulletin board with baby pictures of, of the, especially the first five years of people on staff here. And it was really interesting seeing those baby pictures because you could actually see exactly who that person was <laughs> way back then. You know, it's almost as if there's, I don't know whether it's genetic or past life or whatever, but there's a way we manifest in personality. There's a common thread. And just as a story from the suttas, which illustrates this, you know, somewhat funny way. There was this uh, procession of uh, arhants, you know, fully enlightened beings who were walking. Uh, and they were walking through the forest and they came to a stream. And all of them crossed the stream with great dignity and decorum and, you know, because here they are fully enlightened. And this one monk kind of hitches up his robes and takes a running jump and leaps across the stream. <laughs> You know, so just imagine the scene, you know, everybody's... So the other monks were really quite upset in whatever way Arhans get upset. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they went to the Buddha and they said, you know, this guy's supposed to be fully enlightened, what's he doing behaving like that? And the Buddha, I guess, looked inward or whatever and... He said, well, that monk had been a monkey for the last 500 lifetimes. <laughs> and it was just these, the latent personality tendencies <laughs> playing themselves out. Uh, but I think, I think really the distinction between character and personality is very critical. Uh, because often, and it's especially critical both in our sense of ourselves, but also our sense of other people, because we often get caught in some way in our judgment of other people's personalities and don't necessarily connect 
with the truth of the character beneath it. You know, and we often misread people. And I'm, just one example of that. I remember I was, I was, this was when I was practicing in India, and this one guy came. I'd been there a long time. This one guy came. He was kind of traveling through, and he had a quite an obnoxious personality. You know, kind of, uh, and he said he wanted to give a talk. So it was a little hard to know what to do because. It's not what usually was done, you know, in the meditation hall was... There was a certain sense of it being a protected and sacred space, and this guy's personality didn't... questionable. Uh, but also we didn't want to say, you know, no, you can't give the talk, so... We just arranged for him to do it under... Uh, in the garden, out in the garden of this place, you know, under a tree. And he sat down and he gave the most beautiful Dharma talk. You know, and it was, just, it was completely surprising to me that this is what was coming out. And it was just a very good lesson for me. You know, in not fixing my view of a person just on the superficial personality level because there can be often something much deeper. Pure enough. This is actually a very, uh, a very subtle matter. But before I get into the subtlety of it, I think very often our motives are mixed. And so I don't think there has to be a lot of self-judgment about that. You know, if they weren't, if our minds were totally pure, we wouldn't be, need to be here. I mean. <laughs> We'd be fully awake, we'd be fully enlightened, there'd be no ignorance in the mind. The fact is that there is, you know, and that doesn't have to be a cause of self-judgment. It can really be an inspiration to do the practice and to, to see those places of, uh, call them impurity or galesa or places of sticking attachment. And it's actually quite 
insightful and freeing to begin to see the mixture of motives. Because mostly people are not even paying attention to that. So in a way, just in the seeing of what you described, you're freeing the mind from ignorance and delusion about what's going on. And that itself is very powerful. That is, you know, it's said that awareness itself is what purifies the mind. It's not our, it's not our clinging to purity. It's just out of the seeing. And so that's very much on that path. The subtlety... Uh, I'll just give you an example from the classical teachings. It sort of presents the problem. It's said that generosity is a wholesome act. That it's more wholesome when we give freely without expectation of anything back from it, where it's really just a free gift. But it's also more wholesome to have the wisdom that knows that wholesome acts bring good results, rather than to not know it. So here we are with this problem of, in an act of generosity, to have the wisdom, yes, this this is a wholesome act, we're doing it out of a generous motive, to know that it's a wholesome act, it will bring a good result, but without expecting or wanting the result. So that's a very, that's a very fine line there. Uh, but again, just for me, the knowing of the subtleties of how all this is working actually becomes simply an an inspiration for interest. Okay, so now when I practice, you know, in a moment of generosity, it's like I'm aware of all that, and I'm just watching to see, okay, I know that this is going to have, you know, some good result. What is that understanding doing to my expectation? Right? Is, is it feeding it? Is it not feeding it? And so it all becomes part of this exploration. Uh, on very very fine discriminations. And also just one PS to all this, don't drive yourself crazy with all this. (laughs) You know, awareness itself is what purifies. So it's just, it's just by paying attention. You know, all of this is uncovered. The 
The question was about uh, waking up and through the day experiencing this pain. Uh, it's not quite clear where it's coming from and whether it could be a kind of withdrawal symptom. Um, it could be anything. You know, and I'm not sure it's necessarily helpful to try to figure out where it comes from. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is, as I described, that we're in a process of decompression and if you are getting too engaged, too active, too quickly, it will undoubtedly stress the body. You know, and so just to see whether that's a contributing factor. Much more important though, I think, is to really be looking at how the mind is relating to that pain. Now, one thing that I, re I read in the suttas, which I mentioned to you, I think, to me it was a, I mean, one of the things that's so powerful about the Buddhist teachings is that it's completely uncompromising. You know, he just, he just says exactly how it is. And he's not trying to please people or make people happy or, he's just, so one of the things that I read in the suttas and just struck me. He said, liberation is impossible as long as there is any attachment to the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant. <laughs> That's a pretty drastic statement given our experience. But it also points to what our practice actually is. So, for example, you know, you wake up in this pain for whatever reason. Right there is the place to see, to practice. Are we practicing the mind of liberation? You know, being with it without aversion, kind of dropping right back into that space of seeing it simply as unpleasant feeling being known. Or do we not? Do we get caught in our more habitual response of, I don't like this, and we contract, or this fear, or whatever. So that's the more useful inquiry, rather than uh, necessarily trying to figure out where it comes from. Uh, although, if your hand is in fire and it's burning, you might pull it out. You have doubts. Maybe there is no answer to this, but there always appears this question, if we 
The question was uh, paraphrased about the difficulties that have been reported or stories told of great spiritual masters in the time of their dying, you know, either doubt or confusion or fear or whatever arising. And in the face of that, what does that say about our own efforts? Um, Just, I think there are a couple of levels to consider the question. I mean, I don't know what was going on in their minds, so... I can't report on it, but just a kind of a few ways to consider. One is the understanding that awakening or enlightenment or liberation is in stages. You know, and so somebody can have deep and transforming and genuine realization and not necessarily be all done. Right? Because ignorance is not uprooted from the mind, until full enlightenment, full awakening. And so one possibility in that scenario is that the levels of realization were there and the teachings that came out of it were genuine and that is still not finished. And so other, other kalesas may still arise at the time of death. I have found that very helpful, that model, because it's very easy to idealize spiritual teachers and then, out of our own projection, expect a kind of perfection which they may not live up to. And then it can get confusing for us. Well, if they're so enlightened, why are they doing this? Uh, And it may well be that, as I say, that there are levels of genuine realization and more remains to be done. On another level, and this is something I think you've all experienced, you, we, can't control necessarily what comes up in the mind. You know, when you're sitting, do you ask for fear? Do you ask for confusion? Do you ask for doubt? No, it just arises. And just as you said, with your doubt, that the doubt comes, but you've learned how to handle it. You just see it arising and it goes away. It could well be that these beings are reporting what's coming up and that it's really not a problem for them. And actually, I don't remember it exactly, so this is a bit of a paraphrase, but it was also about Suzuki Roshi talking about dying and I this is not going to be exact but maybe we'll get the the point Uh, something about dying in a lot of pain and somebody asked him you know how he would be whether he's going to go out will be able to go out peacefully and he said uh, it doesn't matter if I'm crying it's crying Buddha it was something like that it was just the sense of whatever it is that arises, how is it being held? And in these great beings, it may, even though these things arise, they may be held with a great deal of wisdom. So you just you know, might consider those possibilities. 
change my practice for a while. I started sending the mirrors my practice to Matthew. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've done a few favours too. <laughs> 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 um, wisdom and generosity. So, uh, and in dealing with this question of monasticism that was asked to you, um, I'm also very grateful that, uh, you know, uh, that you didn't ordain. It's almost like, you know, you're the bridge We had the first one actually in Bucksport, Maine. In 70, uh, 76. And how many people came? Uh, 35, I think. 30 or 35. Ah, that's great. <laughs> 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 I do. So, when you first came here, into this sense of Sharon said you came around this No, I think the upper walking room was very much like it is now, except it didn't have the Buddha image. <laughs> uh, this was very similar also, except that there was a... This was the chapel for the brothers, and people, I believe, from the town would come on Sundays. So this was set up in the way a church altar is set up, but I don't remember the details of that. You know, there was, yeah, I think there was a real, um, uh, I don't remember. There might well have been. No, no, no. But, I mean, one of the amazing things about this place was that when we got it, it's like it was ready to go. We we had to do very little there. I mean, it was it was amazing. You know, it was beautiful. Uh, we could just come in and start a lot of the same dishes, <laughs> as you may have noticed. <laughs> You know, so in that way, the place was, was quite ideally set up for what we wanted to do. When we came, there, was, there were only, I think, 12 brothers left here. You know, they were, they were rattling around in this place, and I think that's why they were anxious to sell. So just you and Sharon from 
Uh, no, they were. We always had a, a group of teachers. Jack Cornfield uh, over this a lot in the beginning, uh, and some others. There are some people on staff now who are quite interested in that and trying to dredge the memories <laughs> of an aging population. <laughs> 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 and you know, this is, I don't know whether Ken or Andy mentioned to you, but uh, any of you who are interested in helping with plan for or organize or have ideas about you know, that 20th celebration next summer, you should contact uh, someone in the office or the staff because we're looking for Sangha and support for this. It really will be a Sangha event. Please see me. There's Edwin who is soon to become executive director in February. So. The question was, uh, speaking of the actions we do in an environmental context and the context of the first precept of not killing, um, the question was about in the summertime, in mowing the lawns, that just the use of the lawn mower and the gas is probably environmentally not helpful, and perhaps the killing of I don't know what, what gets killed exactly, if, if anything, but insects or um, why we do that. Um, I think in this whole question, not only for IMS as an institution, but also for each of us in our lives, um, We look, we, we find a line to be drawn because it's actually would be impossible to live without killing. You know, every time we breathe in or do we, when we take antibiotics or that there's a line someplace and we all draw it someplace. There was 
just as a, uh, a very practical situation that came up for us in the center, which uh, and we've dealt with over the years, is uh, what to do about the cockroaches. You know, because there were some years where the place got so infested that, I mean, they were dropping into the food, and it was, it was terrible. And this was really a great moral dilemma. Uh, we, had, <laughs> we had a committee on the board, the board of directors, uh, in, in perhaps not the best uh, naming of it. <laughs> we called it the killing committee. <laughs> Yeah, because we were really, it was a dilemma, you know, we, the group of people who take the precepts very seriously, didn't want to kill, it seemed like just a very big problem and we, we investigated a lot of alternative routes, you know, talking to them and praying to the day, really, I mean, there was, there was a lot of effort. Until finally, I mean, we took some action that uh, does kill them. And it just, it was a choice, you know, that seemed, weighing it all, it seemed the best one. Um, so there's, there's a line, and for different people that line will fall in different places. And for some people, you know, letting letting the, gr the grass and the, the grounds grow wild might be the choice that they make. For other people, they feel uh, that it's important to keep the grounds... Uh... Yes, but... It, There is. I, it's true, but I would be very careful about. Uh, be very careful about legislating it, because your line will be in a different place than other people's, and the same question came up in the time of the Buddha. There was a whole uh, group of monks who wanted him to make one of the rules that, that the monks should not eat meat. Very much in, in, this, in line of this question. And he refused to do it. Uh, there were certain rules about when it was acceptable and when it wasn't. For people at one end of the spectrum, they would think any eating meat, any eating of meat should be prohibited. And for other people, it's not even an issue. The Buddha drew a line somewhere in the middle. And so I think that in this regard, it's important for us to really look at these questions deeply in ourselves to act from the place of our greatest wisdom and integrity, but also not become tyrannical in our assessment about the acts of others. You know, I think that there can be an education process and a dialogue and a 
open discussion of it. Uh, but I think it's just important to have that understanding that there is a, a range of views about choices. And the question, the question often comes up about vegetarianism. And I think it's really each one of us has to decide uh, for ourselves. That's the best I can do on that one. <laughs> The question was about how we relate to the aging of the body and the growing uh, decrepitude of the body as we all get older, and why the Buddha, the images are always of the Buddha in the prime of health and youth. Um, well, two things come to mind. One is that there is one very powerful image which you find in certain Buddhist cultures uh, of the Buddha when he was practicing the ascetic disciplines. Before he attained enlightenment, the Bodhisattva, and it's called uh, colloquially, uh, that image is called the, the emaciated Buddha or the emaciated Bodhisattva, and it's a very powerful image because it shows him as a totally emaciated being. Uh, so it's not so much related to death, but to the nature of the body in that state. So that those forms are there. Um, and in traditional Buddhist cultures, there's a lot about uh, contemplation, contemplations of the body in various stages of illness or decay, a lot of contemplations of skeletons. Uh, so that's, that's all part. Uh, I think also it's helpful to see it in a cultural context. In Asia, the face of age and death is right out there. I mean, it's just part of the culture. And so there may not have been felt a need to particularly have it as an image because it's, it's just part of how people grow up and live. And that's one of the very uh, powerful things about living in India. Because nothing's covered, you know, as we do. It's like it all happens on the streets. Uh, so the whole relationship to it is different than uh, than society. Maybe we should get a few other images here. Well, 
Well, I was, I was not saying that as a uh, definite uh, prophecy or... <laughs> it was just the sense that over time, maybe a whole monastic culture would evolve. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate what you said, and I think that, that uh, it will be a great thing. And I feel that what we're doing actually is creating the ground for it. That monasteries 
can only happen and flourish when there is lay support for them. And I think that's so far the missing piece. That lay support, when, when people are not born into that culture, really is going to come out of wisdom and understanding and practice. And I really see that that's what we're doing now. You know, we're creating a field of people and practitioners who understand the value of the Dharma, understand the value of renunciation, and hopefully there'll be a time when there's a critical mass that it actually can support a monastic structure. So I, I don't see what we're doing as separate from that. Okay, I think maybe less question. Uh. I have I have a tremendous amount of faith in the Dharma and the unfolding of it, and one of the things that. Also, the Buddha was said, in terms of presence or absence of enlightened beings in the world, said where the Eightfold Path is practiced, then enlightenment, enlightened beings are there. And when it's not practiced, it's not. Uh, and so I feel that if we are really committed to this path of awakening, to putting it into practice in our lives, there will be you know, a very great flourishing. And it's, it's a beautiful vision, and certainly one that's needed, given the amount of suffering in the world. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.